If you were trying to describe what it looks like to live as a Christian, what would you say? I suspect a number of things were flashing through our minds. In response to that question and similar questions like it, I saw a recent survey. And the survey said these things. It said that um, four out of five people, Christians, agreed that the Christian life is well described as trying harder to do what God commands. It said that two-thirds of the churchgoers replied that rigid rules and strict standards are an important part of the life and teaching of my church. And one-fourth of the people surveyed said that they, they serve God out of a sense of guilt and obligation rather than joy and gratitude. Now, I don't know if that describes you at all, any of those, but I suspect there are moments when it might. Moments when being a follower of Jesus is something that we really think about as rules and standards and measuring up and pleasing God and not getting in trouble with God. Obligation. And there's something in the human nature that, that tends to gravitate toward that kind of thinking. And I'm convinced that the reason we do that, the reason we have what I would consider a skewed view of, of what it looks like to live as a Christian and think about Christianity, is because we have a skewed view of God. And I think that's exactly what the Israelites are wrestling with in the 30th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. As in the verses before what we read, it's clear that uh, as you look at the context, Assyria is threatening Israel. And Assyria is the, the nation of that time, and they are ruthless people. They have left a wake of carnage and destruction as they conquer nation after nation after nation. And now they have come to Israel. They have set their sights on Israel. And Israel can see the little red dot of their weapons on their chest. And they're scared to death, as any of us might be. And in their fear and in their panic, as they are trying to figure out what to do about this mighty Assyrian nation and their relatively small army, their first recourse is to look to Egypt. And to say, Egypt's got a good army. If we give them enough money, they'll help us. They'll save us. And you have this prophecy then that Isaiah brings to them and says, in essence, why would you do that? It's God is standing before them saying, I'm right here. I'm in the room and you're choosing Egypt? Really? And he tells them, if you choose Egypt, there's going to, there are going to be things that are going to happen and you're not going to like it. It's going to be bad. And I am convinced that the reason they choose Egypt is because they have a skewed view of who God is. Now, I understand why it's a temptation to choose Egypt. They are, I mean, Assyria is a visible enemy. They have swords and other weapons. And, and they are something you can see and you're going to, and feel. And when you see a visible enemy, you want a visible solution. 
And we do the same thing all the time. We come face to face with things. They aren't necessarily spiritual things, but they're all kinds of stuff that weigh heavily upon us in our lives. And our natural recourse is to try to find some kind of human solution to them. It it just makes sense. And the problem here is not that that Israel is looking for a visible solution. The problem is that they don't think God is a visible solution. They think Egypt is a more visible solution than God is. And I think we wrestle with the same thing. You would expect that in that context that God would say to them, okay, fine. I'm done. And he does hint to them that, all right, if you want to choose that path, here's what's going to happen. And he talks about how they're, you know, they won't, they'll be such, they'll be so shattered that... They won't be able to find a shard of pottery that's big enough to hold a coal from the fire or a little water from a cistern. I mean, there's a lot of destruction. And then we come to verse 15, and God says, in essence, but if you return to me, it can all be different. It's it's just a continual reminder to us that even in rejecting God, there is grace. God continues to offer grace. And he says to them, here is my offer of grace. Return to me. Rest in me. And you will be saved. Now, in many translations, it says repent. Some say return, some say repent. But there is a sense in which that word also has the idea of of sitting still. Waiting. It's the word that that Moses uses in Exodus 14. The Israelites have just come out of Egypt and they are on the banks of the Red Sea and waiting, looking around like, what do we do now? We can't cross this water. Where do we go? And all of a sudden they realize the Israelite or Egyptians are coming up behind them. And the Egyptians are right on on them and they are stuck between these two immovable objects. And they begin to panic and they cry out to God. They cry out to Moses, why did you do this to us? We, should, we were better off in Egypt. We're just going to die here in the banks of the Red Sea. And they, they complain. And, and what does Moses say? Stand still and watch the Lord rescue you. Stand still. And God will rescue you. Just Wait. Maybe in our modern parlance, we would say, just chill out. You know, just, just wait. And God will rescue you. Can you trust him for that? You can see where, how that would be connected to returning and repentance. Because in essence, standing still is saying, God, I don't know how, but I believe you can do this. I know I've tried other alternatives sometimes, but now here I am. I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to trust you. Resting in God, waiting in God, that, that, that's hard praying, to be honest with you. Because it makes us feel so vulnerable. Think how vulnerable Israel feels on the banks of the Red Sea and even here as they're facing Assyria. 
to do, in in essence, how we would describe it, to do nothing but to just wait on God. You're giving up control. And wow, we hate giving up control, don't we? I mean, we all, we, we want control. We want to be able to manage things and take care of things and do things and push buttons and pull knobs. We want to do all of it because we, we believe that the most vulnerable place you can be is to give up control. Which is why God keeps calling us to give up control. Calling us to be vulnerable. To rest in Him. To trust Him. To return to Him. To sit with Him. To listen to Him. And this is not, a, a, this is not a, an admonition to not do anything. Because after Moses says, stand still and watch the Lord rescue you. A few verses down the road, he says, okay, now let's get up and go. Let's get up and do something. But the standing still is first. And the doing comes out of that. And here, in Isaiah 30, just a few verses beyond what we read, after God says to to wait, to rest, to, to sit with him, to trust him, he says, now, you're going to take off and you're going to walk. And I will tell you which way to go. But the walking, the going, is a response of the being. The waiting, the listening, trusting, resting. I think one of the struggles we have with this is that it doesn't feel like we're doing anything. You know, so often, I think we wrestle to pray much because it feels unproductive. You know, and we, we want to be productive. And it feels like we're not really doing anything helpful. We're not, I mean, I love checking things off a list. You know, my outlook, I, you know, I have a task list and I use that to its fullest extent possible. And I love that. I love being able to check things off the list or crossing out things. In fact, sometimes if I do something and it wasn't on my list, I put it on the list after I do it so I can cross it off. Now you know some things about me you probably didn't want to know. You know, because it just feels so good to accomplish tasks. You get to the end of the day and we view a successful day as, look at the things I got done. And when you leave many things undone, it just doesn't feel like you've accomplished much. And that's how we view success, productivity. And quite frankly, how do you measure the productivity of prayer? How do we measure that? I mean, we can measure it in the quantity of time we pray, perhaps. But how do we really measure quantitatively, qualitatively prayer? Especially waiting prayer, listening prayer. The truth of the matter is, we can't. That's why it's such a challenge for us. And that's why God keeps calling us to it. And what we miss is that this kind of praying is not a burden, it's freedom. Because we have realized that to live our lives where we don't have to be the solution to every one of our problems is freedom. That God is there, he's present every single moment and we are trusting him that. It's freedom. Freedom. 
I love what um, what he says here in verse 15. After he talks about returning and resting, then he says, in quietness and trust, in quietness and confidence is your strength. It's just listening. Being still. And why does it give us strength? Why does that exude confidence? Because I'm convinced when we pray and when we use waiting prayer, when we rest in prayer, when we listen to God in prayer, when we contemplate God in prayer, we begin to know who God is. And there is nothing more important for any of us to comprehend than who God is. Everything about our lives hinges on understanding who God is. And God keeps telling us over and over again in the scriptures. You see, I think that's one of the reasons why God keeps repeating to Israel, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Why does he keep telling them that? Because that is so, so core to who God is. This is the kind of God I am. And if you, unless you remember that, you're always going to have a skewed view of me. You're never going to trust me. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 46, all this chaos that's going on in the world, all the trouble and difficulty and, and, and everything is totally out of kilter. What is the psalmist's re- reply to that? It's a word from the Lord. The song we just sang, be still and know that I am God. How do we know that he's God? By being still, by listening, waiting, resting. Psalm 40 or Isaiah 40 comes to an end. The Israelites are again complaining to God and and saying, you've forgotten us. You don't care about us. We don't mean anything to you. And And Isaiah says, why do you say, O Israel, that the Lord has forgotten you? Why do you say that my way is disregarded by God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the universe. He doesn't grow tired or weary. And the answer is, they don't know. They've forgotten. They haven't taken the time to be still and know that he is God. And one of the reasons we struggle so much to trust God and to believe that God is who he says he is, is because we don't give ourselves opportunities to know who God is. It's a gift. And what fascinates me is that when you get to verse 18, God, uh, Isaiah says, in essence, when you begin to know who God is, you feel so fortunate to be able to wait for God. 
Most of the time, we're not thinking of waiting as being fortunate. But here he says in verse 18 that blessed are those who, who wait. Why is that? Because they have, they have experienced God. They begin to know who God is. And he tells us in verse 18 that God is faithful. Faithfulness is not something God chooses to do. It is who God is. It's his nature, his character. He cannot not be faithful. It's the, it's the nature of God. He is love. He is good. He is righteous. He is just. He is faithful. And these are not things that God chooses to do as if sometimes he does them and sometimes he doesn't. It is simply who God is. We don't have to worry about it. It's the nature of God. And so even to wait on God, even to rest in God, even to, to, to wonder, not see God work, but to say, I'm going to wait, is something to feel fortunate about and to feel blessed about because we're waiting on this God. And we know who he is. And it's good. We know he's with us. We know he's at work, even if we don't see it, because this is who God is. Even God's judgment, when we know who God is, looks different. Most of the time when we think about God's judgment or God's wrath, we, we see it as the worst thing in the world. We talk about, man, don't get caught in God's wrath. Don't get caught in God's judgment. I mean, and it, it can be overwhelming. But God's judgment is just as much a part of his love as his grace is. That's why in 1 Chronicles 21, when David, when David sins grievously against God by taking the census, God says, I'm going to give you three choices. You can have three years of famine, you can have three months of the attacks of your enemies, or you can have three days of my angel bringing a plague onto Israel. And I suspect most people would say, um, I'll take the famine or my enemies. I don't want to get in the way of God's wrath. But David doesn't. David says, I would much rather face God's wrath than anybody else's. Because despite David's poor judgment and despite his sin, he knows something about who God is. And he says, God will be merciful. And he is. I think that's what Jesus is talking about at least one one extent when he when he write, when he says in Matthew eleven, "Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Come to me, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is who God is." And to rest in him and to come to him and to wait on him and to listen to him is the greatest thing in the world. Because we get to know more and more of who he is. And maybe we're hesitant to do that because we're, we're afraid God's going to put his finger on something in our lives that we shouldn't be doing. That's destructive for us and we want him to leave us alone. Sort of like the Israelites saying to the prophets, stop telling us about all these great things of God. Just let us be. Let's do what we want to do. I don't want to hear these things. I don't want to hear what God has to say. I'm just going to do my own thing. And if that's our perspective, then 
Listening to God, being quiet before God, will be the most agonizing thing we could experience. Because God's plan for us and his work in us is to do good for us and to bring us away from decisions that are destructive to decisions that are life in him. And so he calls us to listen and to hear him. And yes, sometimes God does put his finger on things in our lives, but he needs to. It's in our best interest. And if we're honest, we know that's true. When we begin to know God, we realize how many reasons we have to be thankful. When we begin to know who God is, gratitude begins to pour out of us. How can it not? How can we not be thankful? How can we not be grateful when we begin to understand the nature and the character of God? I suspect that's why... Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and says, In everything give thanks. This is the will of God for all who belong to Jesus Christ. And it's not the will of God as if it's something we we have to manufacture. But when we know who God is, of course it's the will of God. Because people who are grateful have come to understand something about who God is. And that's why this table is called the Great Thanksgiving, the Eucharist. Because it is, we come to this table in gratitude and thanksgiving for who God is and for what God has done. And in this table, we see a little bit more clearly the heart of God. The heart of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ. I heard someone say not too long ago that nobody, nobody takes a Sabbath by accident. And I would add to that, nobody rests in prayer by accident. It's something we do because we want to know God. We want to see Him, experience Him. So we're going to take a few moments this morning in silence to listen to God, to wait on God, and just as a model, as a glimpse of what God's asking of us, calling us to, that we might know him more.
Father, thank you for the privilege to rest in you, to listen to you, to know you. Let us see this as a gift of freedom. We thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We come to this table and and ask that you would pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink, we will find nourishment for our souls. We might gain a, a bit more understanding of who you are. And find ourselves blessed and fortunate. We ask all of this through Christ. Amen.